In an attempt to better understand the signs of the new covenant, today we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and consider the significance of Paul's instruction about baptism and communion as they're displayed in the story of the Exodus from Egypt. And let me just tell you, I bet you haven't had anyone walk you through what's about to happen in this episode. Welcome to episode 84, From Exodus to Communion, Exploring the Biblical Roots of the New Covenant. Well, this is Greg Hall, and you have made it back for another episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Thanks for tuning in. In the last episode, we dove into the modern practice of baptism. And can I say, I think we got fully immersed in the topic And today we're going to focus maybe a little bit more heavily on the sign of communion. We're going to talk about covenants and signs of covenants throughout the Bible and even in our modern day. And this is not only theologically significant, but it helps to answer the question that I received this past weekend at a camp in Central Oregon. I went to a multi-generational multi-ethnic camp this last weekend. It was put on by a group called Centered out of Washington State, and it was held at the Washington Family Ranch in Central Oregon. And for those of you not familiar with the history of Young Life's property there in Central Oregon, it used to be, back in the 1980s, a very controversial place. Because that's where the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and Manan Sheila set up their camp and invited followers that only wore red to Central Oregon. They tried to take over the government of Central Oregon. It's a very interesting story, but it's not our favorite chapter in Oregon history. Well, the property has since been redeemed. And every year, this group out of Washington, Centered, has a multi-generational, multi-ethnic camp centered around the person of Jesus. And it was on the last day of this camp that I received a question from somebody right after we had taken communion in our last meeting together. Someone came up to me and asked, why do we remember the Lord's death in communion? Why aren't we instructed to remember his resurrection and his ascension? This is a great question. And It has to do with the ancient process of creating a covenant agreement that we no longer practice in our modern culture. So for this episode, I'd like to talk a little more about biblical covenants and their signs. In the first segment of the episode, I'll talk a little bit about covenantal signs in the Old Testament, get our bearings and our footings set in place here early on. Then we'll continue the conversation we started in the last episode and talk about the new covenant signs more. By the end of today's episode, we'll spend some significant time with the new covenant sign of communion. And I don't know what you thought of when I just mentioned communion, but this discussion probably isn't going to go at all like you expect. We're going to be kind of focused in on 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, 
And our dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 10 will take us back into the story of the Old Testament Israelites and their redemption story out of the land of Egypt. And we will find out that their ancient story of redemption is surprisingly similar to our path out of slavery to sin. All that and much more in today's episode. So in the last episode, we ventured into the New Testament, then took a closer look at who got baptized and if maybe we really understood what was going on shortly after the Jesus events. That last episode is a good companion to this one because we're focusing on the signs of the new covenant. The relationship of faith that believers enter into is a covenant relationship often described in the Bible by using a marriage metaphor. And this is good because marriage is much more than only the contractual agreement that our culture sometimes portrays it as. Let me just suggest that there's supposed to be something sacred about the marriage relationship. It's supposed to be unique among our experiences. And when two people agree to enter into a marriage, it creates a covenant. And that covenant has stipulations that involve both parties. So we instinctively know this about modern marriages, that both parties promise to live up to the stipulations of the covenant they are entering into. And the modern wedding typically has a visible sign that the parties display to show that they are covenantally bound. And that's typically the wedding ring. And I mentioned in the last episode that there's really nothing magical about the ring. It's just a visible sign that a covenant exists. I wrote about covenants in a couple different places in my book, Rethinking Rest, and I'll be pulling from some of that content throughout today's episode as well. It's in that book where I discuss a little bit about covenants within the Bible and the signs or I call them reminders, to the parties involved that a covenant is in place. Those familiar with the biblical story are probably already aware of some of these covenants and signs. So let's just talk about a few. For instance, when the Lord made a covenant with humanity through Noah, we're talking about Genesis chapter 9 now, he gave the sign of the rainbow as a confirmation and a reminder of that covenant. Similarly, when God established a covenant with Abraham, uh, skipping ahead to Genesis 17, God established the sign of circumcision. And although we've been talking about rest and Sabbath quite a bit over the last few months on the episodes in this podcast, it might be surprising to learn that for the covenant God established with the people at Mount Sinai, the sign of that covenant was God's Sabbaths. Here, I'll just read out of Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through the beginning of verse 14. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout our generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore, you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. When God talks about plural Sabbaths, 
you shall surely observe my Sabbaths. He's not just talking about the fourth commandment, that weekly observation of a Sabbath day. Because in the Old Testament, there were many Sabbaths that comprised a whole theology. In addition to the weekly Sabbath, you had additional Sabbath days attached to the yearly festivals. Beyond the additional Sabbath days and the festivals, you had every seven years a sabbatical year. And every 50th year, it all culminated in this idea of the year of Jubilee, an idea that Israel never really lived up to. They never expressed it fully, and the sign of the covenant, therefore, was never fully demonstrated to the world. So when God talked to Moses and he gave the people of the Old Testament there at Mount Sinai a sign for the covenant that they were about to agree to, he included the whole theology of Sabbath. It included a weekly observance, several times a year observance, every seventh year, every 50th year. And all of that was to be done in a land of rest. So the sign of the Mosaic Covenant is not just the one day a week. Rather, the sign is the whole theology of the ever-expanding picture of Sabbath rest that the Bible presents. So what did that look like? When the Israelites observed the weekly Sabbaths and the festival Sabbaths and the sabbatical years and the year of Jubilee, they were participating in the sign of their covenant. So God's instruction there in verse 13 is to observe my Sabbaths. And like I said, they never really fully implemented all of those things at any given time. The sign of the covenant was never fully displayed. And years later in their story, the prophet Ezekiel, he described God's response to their lack of obedience. I'll just read out of Ezekiel chapter 20. This will be verses 10 through 13. Ezekiel said, So I took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and informed them of my ordinances, by which, if a man observes them, he will live. Also, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, and they rejected my ordinances. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. So breaking away from the biblical text for just a minute, that was true of the first generation in the wilderness, but it was also true of the Israelites after they entered the promised land, that next generation of people. Israel's practice of the Sabbaths was corrupted by their own ideas of what it should be. They changed the sign of the covenant and adapted it for their own purposes. They added their own meanings and chose to never include key parts of the covenantal sign. And I mentioned before, Israel never observed the year of Jubilee the way it was described to them. That once-a-generation celebration was to be the most profound picture to all of humanity of what it was like to live at rest with God. 
But that illustration of rest was never completed. So God's Sabbaths are the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And Jesus claimed in the New Testament to fulfill each of those Sabbaths. His ministry introduced an advanced understanding of rest. And it simultaneously also unveiled a new covenant with humanity. So, we've talked a little bit about the Old Testament, and let me just kind of backpedal a little bit. It's important for those who are involved in a covenant to understand which signs have been given and how they are to be implemented. When Lisa and I got married, we both put on wedding rings. And let me just tell you, a few times I took that wedding ring off early in our marriage. Uh, I did when I was playing basketball. I didn't want to leave my finger up there on the rim back in the days when I could actually reach the rim. And there was the uh, time when I took it off and we were remodeling our first house. And I'm not exactly sure how the chain of command got disrupted so poorly, but my ring disappeared for several days. And it was only after a second attempt of scrounging through the garbage bags out back that I found my wedding ring in the garbage. All that said, the signs of a covenant are extremely important. It's a quick reminder not only that a covenant exists, but that both parties are continually acknowledging that they are agreeing to the stipulations of that covenant. And to the extent that the covenant participants correctly display the signs, the signs themselves become an effective signal to all of humanity, illustrating what the covenant is all about. Had the ancient Israelites correctly observed God's Sabbaths, all of them, the whole theology of Sabbath that comes out of the Mosaic Law, it would have been a powerful and effective signal to all of humanity, illustrating what that covenant was all about. But to the extent that the signs are not accurately presented, it can insert confusion about who God is and what he's already accomplished. And in the remainder of today's episode, we're going to dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul makes an argument that the foundations of the new covenant's sign of baptism and communion were typologically prefigured in the story of those people coming out of Egypt. And also, for the remainder of this episode, I'll be pulling some quotes out of an article written by Dr. Gary Crampton, who, as far as I can tell, is still a pastor at Reformed Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. His article that was published in the Reformed Baptist Theological Review Hold on to your seats here. It's titled The Sacramental Implications of 1 Corinthians 10, 1-4, A Confessional Study of Baptism and the Lord's Supper. I'll put all the details of where you can find it in the show notes. And it's within Crampton's article that he goes to the Westminster Shorter Catechism and gives some definitions for what we're going to be talking about. It's in that confession of faith that the sacraments are described. And uh, 
a sacrament is a holy ordinance wherein, by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. And Crampton says this later statement, where it says applied to believers, the catechism is stressing who it is that should be a partaker of the sacraments, of these signs. It should be believers. And the new covenant is a covenant wherein all who are in it know the Lord. Their sins have been forgiven and remembered no more. So, Crampton says, the biblical sacraments are visible signs and seals of the covenant of grace, the new covenant. And as such, they are visible sermons. As signs, they point to something else, to what they signify, which is certain inward spiritual graces. And, he says, they function as seals. They attest to the authenticity or validity of the covenant promises of God. The sacraments are visible seals. In that, the Holy Spirit is the one who seals the people of God with salvific grace. So the sacraments are visible seals, but it's really the Holy Spirit who actually seals the people of God with salvific grace. The sacraments do not convey grace in and of themselves. And just like we discussed in the last episode, Crampton specifically says that water baptism is a new covenant visible sign of one's entering into the covenant of grace, the new covenant. Water baptism itself does not save anybody, but it's a sign of the reality of the Holy Spirit's baptism, which is unto salvation. And similarly, the Lord's Supper is a new covenant visible sign of abiding within the covenant of grace. It's the process of becoming more like that whom we follow, more Christ-like. So, breaking away from Crampton's article, I'm just going to repeat this again because I'm not sure it's always taught in such a simple, straightforward way when someone comes to faith. When you enter into a faith relationship with Jesus, the Bible refers to that as a covenant. It has stipulations on both sides. And much like two people that get married use wedding rings as a sign, God has given two signs for those who enter into the covenant of marriage with Christ. The initial sign, the very first sign, is to be water baptism. And there's nothing special about the water. But it is an outward symbol, a sign, a seal of something that's happening by the Holy Spirit in the unseen realm. So it's a chance for us to visually show a promise and a covenant that has been entered into. And then, once somebody has entered into that covenant and shown it by way of water baptism, the ongoing sign the way that we continue to confirm that we are still a part of that covenant, kind of like a vow renewal ceremony, communion is our chance to say, yes, I still acknowledge that I'm a part of this covenant relationship that I entered into. And when we take communion, not just individually, but as an entire community, we also bond together with those who have entered into the same covenant along with us. 
To help illustrate the role these signs are intended to play, let's just take a closer look at a particular passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As we will discover, Paul uses this part of his letter to communicate the Old Testament foundations for the new covenant signs that we've become familiar with. Let me just read 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1 and reading through verse 4. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. So, breaking away from the text, we've got Paul, just in this very short passage, mentioning baptism and eating a meal. And there's spiritual food involved in that and spiritual drink. To help us unpack it, we're going to go back to Crampton's article. He says, The Israelites' redemption in their exodus from Egypt as a type of Christ's redemptive crosswork Whereas Israel was redeemed from slavery and bondage in Egypt, Christ redeems his people from slavery to sin. The new exodus has now come to pass in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Israel's baptism, that's spoken of in verse 2, as the people crossed the Red Sea, is typical, it's a type, in other words, of New Testament water baptism. And Israel's partaking of the manna and water from the rock, see verses 3 and 4 in that 1 Corinthians 10 passage, that is a type of the Lord's Supper. So, breaking away from the article, just to remind you, in verses 1 and 2, it says, Our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Crampton says that Paul interprets this event as the Israelites undergoing water baptism. Just as Christian life begins with water baptism, so also did Israel's typological redemption begin with a type of water baptism. Just as water baptism makes a visible difference between those who belong to the church and the rest of the world, Israel's water baptism established her as a separate and sacred, set-apart-for-God group of people. So leaving Crampton's article again, Paul is writing all of this to New Testament believers in Corinth. And he is suggesting that the redemption that those in the Old Testament went through as they came out of Egypt and passed through the waters and then were fed by God that that is a typological progression of the reality that we as New Testament believers experience. And we as New Testament believers have been given signs of the covenant that we're in that reflect that same journey, that we have died to ourselves in a process of baptism. And we've come through those waters and that we seek his nourishment on a regular basis as we continue to become more like Christ.
So, while baptism is the sign of initiation, communion is the sign that one is still involved in the covenant. I've said it before, it's kind of like a vow renewal ceremony every time we take it. We are saying that the vows and stipulations have not been forgotten. But what exactly are the stipulations we've agreed to? And I'm not sure we do a very good job in the church today outlining what it is we're getting into when we say, I'm ready to believe in Jesus. And that's what we're going to discuss here in this last segment of today's episode. And again, we're going to be gleaning from Paul's arguments in 1 Corinthians and venturing back into the Old Testament for more clarity. Remember the types and shadows that Paul's talking about. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. And in his article, Crampton suggests that it's evident that just as Israel received a typological baptism, she also partook typologically of the Lord's Supper. In these verses, Paul is describing Israel's experience of Exodus chapter 16 with the manna and Exodus 17, and again in Numbers chapter 20 with water from the rock. All of these instances were miraculous occurrences. And Paul refers to them as a means of spiritual eating and drinking. The use of the word spiritual likely refers to the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the sustenance is supernatural in origin. And breaking away from Crampton's article, if you go back into those Exodus passages and take a look at the giving of manna, and for that matter, quail, and also the instance not just of the water from the rock, but previous to that, Mara was a bitter water that was made sweet and drinkable by Moses throwing a tree into the water. All of these events are supernaturally created, and they fed the people physically, but as they're being fed physically, and I think this is the key that we need to focus on now, as the people are being fed physically, they are also being nourished spiritually. They are learning about the God and Savior that they are now following and that they're about to enter into a covenant relationship with. God is bringing them along in their journey, both physically and spiritually. And it's Paul that says we in the New Testament as believers can glean from that experience because it's the same God that also does a similar work with us today. And just like the water of baptism doesn't do anything magical, it's just a sign of an inward work that God is doing, the wafer and the juice, nothing magical about that either. They are signs of the nourishment that God gives us that we need to survive in the spiritual realm. And it's those events in Exodus 16 and 17 that eventually progress in the story in the Old Testament into Exodus chapter 24. And it's there where the Israelites find themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai, with Moses going up the mountain and receiving the covenant with God, and then coming back down and affirming it with the people. 
And in Crampton's article, he points out that in Exodus 24, 9 through 11, Israel, or the leaders at least, is involved in a sacramental feast with the Lord after the covenant people of God went through their baptism and the law had been agreed to. It's in Exodus 24, 9 through 11 that Crampton points this out. And let me just read that. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet, there appeared to be pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God, and they ate and drank. And Crampton just points out the similarities that this has with the communion meal that Jesus has with his disciples. But there's something else in Exodus chapter 24 that happens before this that I think is even more significant than the elders going up with Moses and having a meal with God. It's the process of agreeing to and affirming the covenant. And the reason I'm going to point this out is because I believe it's this event that maybe can give us a different framework as New Testament believers as we come to communion as often as we do and reframe it as to what exactly is happening when we put those elements in our mouth and consume them. I wrote about this in my book in chapter 4, and it's there where I said communion then is so much more than the nebulous reminder of Jesus' death that we've made it in some of our modern practices. Its significance is much wider than the tiny stale wafer and deeper than the watered-down thimble of juice that we often serve. And I personally think we've forgotten, or maybe we never even realized it, that the bread and the cup, they were originally attached to a meaningful and fully satisfying fellowship meal with Jesus and his disciples. And it's something Jesus said when he served the cup. He said, if you remember, this is the new covenant in my blood. And I'm not sure if you've thought about those words in the context of the establishment of the new covenant. Those who take communion are acknowledging that they have, through faith, entered into a covenant with God. And remember, a covenant, it's a spiritual agreement. What exactly does that mean in the context of communion? Well, it's here where we're going to venture back into the beginning of Exodus chapter 24, because I believe there's a scene there that foreshadows the New Testament practice of communion. And it tells the story of when Moses received the old covenant from God on Mount Sinai, And the text says that he collected the blood of some sacrificed animals in basins. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And listen to what they said. They said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Each person said this not only individually, but they also said it collectively as a community. And then Moses did something that might seem a little strange (laughs) and maybe a little gross as well. Moses took the blood from the basins that he had collected from the sacrificed animals and he sprinkled it on the people and then listened to what he said. Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance 
with all these words. Did you hear it? The blood of the covenant. That should sound familiar to our New Testament ears. It's the way Jesus introduced the cup at the Last Supper. So let's just recap. At Mount Sinai, the people heard and understood the law. They listened to the whole law. They heard it. They understood it. And then they promised to follow it. And then the blood is sprinkled on them. This is how the Old Covenant was ratified. But the Old Covenant was written on stone tablets. And the new covenant that Jesus offers is far better than the old covenant. It's the details of that covenant that are described in the scriptures, but the implementation of that law is written on the pliable hearts of those who believe, not the rigid rocks of Mount Sinai. So when we come to faith in Christ, we agree to follow the covenant that was spoken by Jesus and is being written on each of our hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. So when we participate in communion, it's as if we are saying, similar to those ancient Israelites, that all that the scriptures have explained regarding the new covenant, and in addition, everything that the Holy Spirit will continue to communicate along our path, we agree to do. We will do it and we will obey. Now, if that wasn't big enough, I'm not sure if you notice one significant difference in the ceremony. Jesus didn't sprinkle us like Moses did on the exterior. And thank God he didn't, because that would be a mess every time communion would be served in churches, right? Instead of sprinkling us on the outside like Moses did with the blood of the Old Covenant— Jesus invites us to drink it. We internalize it. Not that there's anything magical about that, but it is a powerful symbol of the cleansing power that it has in the place that it has it, in our innermost being. We ingest it because that's where it symbolically does its work on our soul. So I'm not sure how you've viewed communion in the past, Maybe we can reframe that idea. It's not just remembering that Jesus died. It's remembering what the death of Jesus allows regarding our covenant. Communion is a time to remember the death of Christ who redeemed us from the imperfection of the old covenant. And it's also a sign to remind us, not just individually, but as a covenant community, that we have agreed to follow the Holy Spirit's direction as a part of our inclusion in the new covenant. And it's the Holy Spirit's voice, it's that voice, that will lead us to the new covenant fulfillment of Sabbath rest that Christ offers. that's all I've got for today. And it kind of rounds out, I think for now, what I was hoping to say about the signs of the new covenant, Uh, the significance of baptism as being the initial sign of our entrance into this covenant, and the important symbolic references given in the Old Testament to the process that we're going through when we take communion. What is it 
that we're remembering when we take communion. It's not just that Jesus died. It's that we're part of an ongoing, vibrant, ever-changing covenant where the law is spoken to us, and we've pre-agreed to be obedient to that voice when it speaks, which just begs the question, how are you doing on listening to the Holy Spirit? Has that been an active part of your relationship with God recently? And if not, this is a great time to maybe reset and refocus. So who was the last person you had a significant conversation about communion with? And could I just suggest that it might be worthy of sending them the link to this podcast and starting a brand new conversation? Oh, and thanks so much for your support of the Rethinking Scripture podcast. <laughs>